For those of you guys joining us online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, and if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, I want to take a second and just pray for us right now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. What a beautiful promise. And Lord, my prayer today um, as we begin is for President Biden. I pray, Lord, for a special grace on his life. I, I pray for wisdom and kindness to him, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you protect his health, his, his mental faculties, uh, his whole body, Lord. And we ask that you would help all of our leaders, God. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving both at home and abroad, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, and Lord, we pray for their salvation, because so many of those guys, they don't know you, Jesus. They don't know you at all. They're not walking with you. They don't love you. Lord, we think of the persecuted church right now. I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. I'm thinking of Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian, and Pastor Wang and Pastor John imprisoned in China, and for the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, the Christians in Afghanistan, the Christians, Lord, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan, in Somalia, in Nigeria, in some of the most hard-to-reach places for the gospel. And in keeping with the author of Hebrews, Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please, God, help the persecuted church. Help the persecuted church, Jesus. And Lord, today I pray that you'd help us. I pray you'd free us from distraction. I pray you'd free us from anxiety. I pray you'd free us from whatever competing thoughts are trying to vie for our attention. And we just hear from you. We just want to hear from you, Lord, today. I pray, Lord, that you would guard my words, that you would keep me from error, I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit, Lord, in my life, that you'd help me to say only what you want me to say. And Lord, if there's something you don't want me to say, don't let me say it. And if there's something I need to say that I have no intention of saying, give me a word. We love you, Jesus. We need you. Help us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we are in the gospel According to John today, and if it's your first time here, we love expository preaching because it's awesome, but that's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the text. This is uncensored, unfiltered. We're just going through it, telling you exactly what the authors of the Bible have told us, exactly what God has communicated through us, uh, through his word. And so um, this is kind of episode two, part two in our journey through John's gospel. And I want to set this up for us because if it is your first time, just a couple quick notes on John. I won't recap and make all the introductory comments that I made uh, in uh, episode one in, in the first sermon that I preached in John's gospel. But you've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are frequently referred to as the synoptic gospels. That's from the Greek word, which means to see together. And so if you've ever been reading in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you're like, wait, I heard a similar story in Matthew that I'm reading in Luke, that, that's why. They have a lot of overlap, they're similar stories. John's gospel, for that reason, kind of stands out. It's rather unique. John is not part of the synoptic gospels. In fact, 90% of the content in John's gospel is unique to John's gospel. 
And what also makes John's gospel so unique is he's writing primarily to a Greek audience. And you'll see this. He'll oftentimes explain Palestinian geography. He'll make sure to translate Aramaic terms into Greek for the benefit of his audience. And in verses 1 through 5, he began his story by talking about the origin of Christ. And of course, Jesus' origin is that there, there is no origin. His origin story has been one that has always existed from all time. And he concluded that summary statement in verse 5 with this great crescendo. The darkness doesn't and won't prevail. Christ will win. The light will win. Jesus will win at the end of the day. So be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. And that's where we're going to segue to today. We're going to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 1, and here is what it says. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came, verse 7, as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So in this very kind of abrupt way, John decides to introduce a new character. He's going to introduce John the Baptist. And we might ask, well, why does he decide to introduce the John the Baptist here? Like, why not get Jesus all the way introduced first and, and then introduce him? Because he's, he's going to return to Jesus momentarily. So you're like, well, why interrupt it in verse 6, 7, and 8 with John? And I think the reason is because John wants his readers to see that God's way of proclaiming Christ in the world is by human agents. God's way of, of pushing back the, the darkness is by human witnesses like John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is introduced here. And it's also worth mentioning that it is only in John's gospel in which you do not find the description John the Baptist. He merely refers to him as John. And of course, it is John the Baptist who will be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus' forerunner. Isaiah predicted him in chapter 40, verse 3. He said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so God sends him ahead of his own son to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. And, and remember for John the Baptist, both his birth and his conception were miraculous because his own parents, they, they never had had children before, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 7 and Luke 1, 36. And so John the Baptist shows up and he's the first true prophet to appear in Israel for 400 years. And, and so when he shows up, it creates quite a stir. The news travels spreads rapidly all over the place. He's a really big deal. So much so that Jesus had this to say about him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So when you hear the lyrics, last name ever, first name greatest, you really should be thinking about John the Baptist according to Jesus. And to be clear, he was the greatest because God chose him to be the forerunner to his son Jesus, to, to be his public address announcer. Not because of his own talents or abilities, but notice what the text says, that all might believe through him. Do you see that in verse 7? 
Verse 7. Do you see that in verse 7? Right there. That all might believe through him. People believe in Christ through him. That is through John the Baptist. People believe through. That's the key word. Through the testimony of witnesses like John. So, So what does that mean? It means that people like John and all who are followers of God are in every generation agents of belief, including this generation. In other words, Christian, 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 you are an agent of belief with Christ being the object of that belief. But make no mistake about it, you are an agent of belief. So John, like every one of us, he's a witness. He's pointing people in the right direction. That's what John is. And I think what is so sad is that for so many Christians today, they don't do this. And not only do they not do this, but they don't see it as necessary or even important. And they'll say things like, well, you know, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. They'll say things like, well, I witness in my own way, or I witness through my life, or I witness through my relationships. So let me, let me set the record straight. As nice and as kind as those things may be, as nice and as kind as it might be to make a plate of cookies for your friends or your unsaved coworkers, a plate of cookies, and your niceness will not save people from going to hell. And I understand that maybe you might not like what I'm saying. Because maybe I'm, I'm saying something that's contradictory to what someone else told you. And I would simply say, if, uh, if you take issue with what I'm saying, you should know that I'm just straight up plagiarizing the Apostle Paul. So, so please don't be upset with me. Or, or have you not heard that it was said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, right? As the Bible says. The truth is, there must be some sort of gospel proclamation for someone to be saved. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to use words. In other words, the stereotypical, unbiblical Christian cliches like preach the gospel and if necessary use words are exactly that, unbiblical. I still remember sitting in the Vine Center. And for those of you guys who don't know, you're not familiar with Lynchburg geography, the Vine Center is a big basketball arena on the campus of the world's most exciting university. Liberty University. And I'm sitting there one evening many years ago, and this well-known, self-designated evangelist, he comes to preach. And before he opens his Bible, before he preaches, before he says anything, he said, we're we're, going to shake things up. We're going to do things differently. We're going to actually do the altar call at the beginning of the service. And I still remember what happened. Someone stood up in the arena and shouted him down. Shouted him down, saying to the effect. How then will they call on the one of whom they have not believed in? And how will they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching to them? And how will anyone preach unless they're set? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good word and the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be indeed. So let me be clear. To be a witness means to say something. And I'm not against. Let me be really clear. 
I'm not against making cookies or brownies or building friendships. But you got to say something. You must say something. And if you don't know what to say, man, you got to figure that out. There is no excuse for any Christian to not be able to articulate the gospel. And here's the second thing that I would say about John the Baptist in these verses. And I'm stealing this straight from Mr. Piper. And that is be ready and open to hear the testimony from others who are sent to us. Be ready and open to hear the testimony from others who are sent to us. Just as the text says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And the reason is because God means to communicate to you, not merely through your own private Bible reading, and and that is of vital importance, but God also communicates through other people. He means to communicate to you through preaching, through small groups, through online sermons and systematic theology books and Christian podcasts. In other words, one of God's ways to communicate with us is through those that he calls and sins, like a John the Baptist. You see, the hope of every believer should be at the end of our lives, someone says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Oh, that God would, oh, that God would place a passion upon us to hear that said about ourselves. Ladies, at the end of your life, my hope is that many women who are in here right now might say there was a woman sent from God whose name was Jess. Diana, or Havila, or Alyssa, or Kayla, or, or, or Rachel, or Katie, or Gretchen. So be ready and be willing for God's call on your life to send you, to bear witness, to have the courage to open your mouth to say true things of eternal significance. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And furthermore, that we might be equally ready to hear and listen and recognize the word of God when it comes from others that God has sent to us. And so here's what he says in verse 9. The true light, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. He is the true light that he's talking about here in verse 9. And that word true in the original language, that's a, it's a very unique word that John loves to use. In fact, uh, all but five of its 28 uses in the New Testament are right here in John's writings. So, so in short, what is true and real is genuine. Not just in name, but in semblance and in nature. And the implication is this. If this is true, if he is true, if Jesus is true, then it stands to reason there are counterfeits in circulation as well. I mean, uh, uh, why otherwise bother emphasizing that he's the true light? And we know this is accurate. There are counterfeit religions. There are counterfeit truths which would seek to persuade you that all roads lead to God. Or it make promises to say things like, well, if you're, if you're a really good person, it, it doesn't matter what religion you are. This of course, is precisely the sort of thing that Paul has warned us of when he writes to the Corinthians. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And if Jesus is the true light, we, we must be on guard. We must be on guard against counterfeits. We, we must. And I would say, let this serve as a warning to every one of you. Because I've married, and I've baptized, and I've prayed for several people the last 10 years pastoring here at this church that have now totally walked away from God. And don't you dare say for one second, oh, that would never happen to me. Lest you fall into the pride of Peter and his own denial of Christ. Just, last, just this last week, there was a gentleman who used to come to this church years ago. And then he moved away. He makes this post on Facebook, Monday. I wake up Monday to see this post. And I quote, I am no longer a Christian and it's liberating. There I said it. I'm not interested in your prayers. I'm not interested in what God is laying on your heart. I don't need to be told that I was never really saved. I don't care what scriptures you reference. I don't need to be loved on by the church. I'm not even angry with God because he's not real. Save your time and energy, end quote. So what Denzel wrote on Monday, it felt like I got punched in the stomach. It's a real person. He sat in these pews. He sang in this room. He listened to the preaching of God's word right here. If he's the true light, you got to wake the heck up and understand that there are counterfeits out there and they are coming for each and every one of you. And if you don't hold fast to Christ, the true light, you may very well be deceived and buy into them. And not only that, this light, he says in verse 9, which gives light to everyone. And this doesn't mean, of course, that everyone will be Christians, right? Nor does it somehow suggest universal salvation because the truth is people refuse to come to the light because they love their sin. They don't want to come to the light. And so the light that is Jesus has come into the world. And this is what we know is Christmas. This is what we know is his incarnation. And it says in verse 10, he, he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. John, he really likes using the term world. He uses it four times right here in verses 10 and 11. In fact, he, he uses it more than any other writer in the Bible. Half of its occurrences in the New Testament are in his writings. And when he says world, the Greek word cosmos, he's describing the physical world. In other words, the world, as John's usage comprises, is no believers at all. In, in part because those who come to faith are no longer of this world. They, they have been chosen out of this world, according to chapter 15, verse 19. And so just as verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world was made through him. Lynchburg was made through him. Virginia, the commonwealth, North America, Europe, the continents, each and every one of them, including you and me, were made by him. Verse 3 also is very emphatic about this, and yet, they didn't know him. They missed him. They didn't recognize him. 
Verse 11 says, He came to His own, and His own people didn't receive Him. As shocking and tragic as the world's rejection of Christ is, it is eclipsed by an even greater tragedy. And that's of Israel's rejection. That's that's what he means by his own people. He came to what properly belongs to him by right of creation. He came to his own possession, his, his own domain, the house of humanity that he had built. And his people said, thanks, but no thanks. The tragic thing here is, he came and we said, go away. He came and we said, beat it. He came to Lynchburg. He came to Virginia. He came coast to coast and across the fruited plains. He came and we said, no. He came and we said, you know what? We prefer our non-binary, gender-affirming, drag-time children's story hours. Get out of here, Jesus. Go away. We don't want your kind here. I mean, can you think of anything more insulting than that? And despite the hatred and the hostility for him, he came anyways to lay his life down for his sheep and live out the greatest love story of all time. And the text continues right into verse 12 and it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pause there. Reflecting on verse 12. Did everyone receive him? Does everyone receive him? No. So so in other words, what can we derive from verse 12 is that God is not everyone's father but he is some people's father. So so how do we test this? How do we test to know whether or not he is our father? Because I'd like to think that's a pretty important test that we need to get right. Not to mention, it's it's helpful for for those of us who struggle with doubt, for those of us who struggle about their status before God, for those of us who struggle wondering, am I actually a Christian? Am I really saved? And the short answer is the way you test to see if he is your father, is by asking the question, do you love his son? Because that's what John 8.42 says. John 8.42 says, if God were your father, and this is Jesus speaking to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here, and I came not of my own accord, but he, he sent me. Do you love God's son? This is part of the test in knowing if God is your father. But there is another test I would submit to you to know if God is your father. And it's centered on this key word right here. In verse 12, receive and believe. You see it? Circle it. Receive, believe. See, receiving and believing Jesus. Now let me clarify something for us right now. To believe Christ involves more than just a mere intellectual acknowledgement of his claims. Because many of us were taught growing up, as long as you believe in him, you won't go to hell. As long as you believe in him, you won't go to hell. When the reality is, there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus and are in hell right now. James would back me up on that. The apostle. 
See, this is my frustration with many churches today, including the ones I grew up in, and I describe them as these cheap grace, easy believism, little to no theology sort of churches who do a, a huge disservice to so many people that are seeking the answer to this question, is God my father? Do I actually know him in a saving way? And so, if part of the test to whether he is our father hinges upon receiving and believing, then we got to figure out, what does it actually mean? What does that look like when we talk about this? When we talk about receiving and believing? Of course, the, the word for receive from the Greek, it's translated to take hold of, to grasp, to obtain. Receiving Jesus means receiving Jesus for who he is. Not who you say he is, but who he says he is. Not as, I love Piper, he said this, not as a peaceful coexistence in which he makes no truth claims. As though he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loudly. Or as long as, as, long as Jesus doesn't get in the way, I guess he can hang out for a while in the spare bedroom. And the reason that I want to qualify that is because people do that today, just as they did in Luke's Gospel. You go to Luke chapter 4, 16, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, and in Luke 4, 16, he's preaching in Nazareth, and it says the people received him gladly. They're like, oh man, this is great, I like this Jesus guy, and then you go to verse 22, and it says, all spoke well of him. They're like, yeah, he's awesome, Jesus, man, he says the most coolest things that come out of his mouth, and then a few verses later in Luke 4, 28, it says all were filled with wrath, and they tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. See, they were happy to receive him while his words were pleasing. But the second that Jesus said something they didn't like, they rejected him. So how do I know if God is my father? Because you believe and receive Jesus and you receive him for who he is. Not who you want him to be. You receive him for who he is or not at all. Because you don't get to make up your own version of Jesus. He won't let you do that. So verse 13 says this. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And, and here's what I did. I'll show you. I, uh, I circled in verse 13, who, and then I drew a little line back to children of God. Because it tells the, the who. The children of God, right? The children of God are the who. So here's what John's doing in verse 13. And that is he's discussing the identity of the children of God and he's going to do so with three negative statements. John wants us to understand that salvation is not obtainable through any racial or ethnic heritage, not of blood. That's why he says not of blood. And then the second thing that he notes is that salvation is not obtainable through personal desire, nor of the will of the flesh. And then finally, John wants us to understand that salvation is not obtainable through the will of man. What, is, what does this mean? What is he saying? John is saying very clearly that receiving and believing Jesus, it's not just difficult, it's impossible for any sinner. And that is because God must give what we lack in order for us to believe in the first place. And I realize that that language is a little bit odd. Who am I getting? This verse is a little odd. It's odd because we've developed habits in which we don't talk the way the 
Bible talks. We've developed those habits. We don't, we don't talk the way the scriptures talk, but rather we emphasize the sorts of things which undo the Bible verses like the one you're staring at right now on the screen in verse 13. And so we start to ponder verse 13. Right? Maybe there's a back door into it. I think that's the term in, in the computer world, right? Maybe there's a back door into verse 13. Or maybe there's a, there's a workaround to this verse. Or, or like maybe we can bend this verse to maybe mean something other than what it seems to be saying. Because I'm not sure that maybe I even like what it's saying. I'm not even sure if I agree with what it's saying. Because I've never heard someone talk the way John is talking despite growing up in the church my whole life. And I would simply respond to that with, is that John's fault or yours that you've never heard anyone talk the way he's talking right now? Let me be real with you just for a moment. From my own personal experience, I understand that sometimes it's only natural to behave instinctively and challenge or dismiss things that we're unfamiliar with, like verse 13, things that perhaps now you're noticing for the very first time, despite it being there in black and white. So here's the question I want to ask. I'll ask this rhetorically. Why are you a Christian? If you're a Christian in here, why are you a Christian? Why are you a child of God? Verse 13 would say, it's not because of who your parents were. It's not because of your ethnic background. It's not even your own will or desire. And I know that is kind of an inflammatory statement to make, but John makes it right there in verse 13. So we've got a few choices. If you want to be upset with somebody, be upset with the Apostle John. I mean, he wrote this. Or you can be upset with the people who designed the central focus of your youth group around playing games instead of learning doctrine and theology, because that was my case growing up. This is indeed weighty, heavy stuff. But you're going to need it when the time comes. See, the reason John says what he says here is because he knows that your will and your desires are by nature enslaved. They are. Read Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 later on. Your will and your nature are enslaved to the God of this world. So go back to my question of why do you love God? Why is he your father? And you might say, I got it. He is because I believe. And I'd say, okay, why do you believe? Hmm. You might say, well, because I was exposed to the truth and I accepted it. Why do you accept it? And you might say, because I made a decision or because it's true, or because I wanted to. But now we've just entered circular reasoning without actually answering the question of why do you love God's son? And you might say, okay, what the heck, Joe? What am I supposed to say here? But that's John's whole point. Receiving and believing in Jesus. It's not just out of the question. It's impossible for any sinner. That's what verse 13 is all about. That's why he uses three negative statements. 
See, the truth is, the only way to respond biblically to the impossibility of the verse 13 reality is when we speak the language of the Bible and apply it accordingly. That's the only way this works. That's the only way to answer this question of how can I possibly love the Son and be born of God if being born of God is impossible according to verse 13. So here's the answer. 1 John 4, 19 the verse I prayed at the very beginning of the service. We love him because he first loved us. That's the only reason you love him, if you love him. It's the only reason. is because he first loved you. Or as John 15, 16 would say, keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And the reason for God operating this way is because I think God gets the maximum amount of credit and glory that is rightly due to him. Or as Galatians 6.14 would say, but far be it from me to boast except on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get to boast. Boasting is removed. Pride is crushed. We are humbled. And in our humility, Christ is exalted in a bigger, higher, more glorious way than we have ever contemplated. Because God did what only he could do in our salvation. And that should make you feel very small and humbled. And so, so, so much more grateful to realize that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So that when you stand before God, whenever he calls you home, and he says, why are you here? You say, it's just you, your grace. You love me first, that's it, that's the only reason. If it wasn't for you, I'd be still lost and dead in my sin. You are the only reason. Verse 13 is a pride slayer. It's a humility growing verse in which our gratitude for his work on the cross, that he's our father, that we love him, should explode like a supernova. See it. See it. It's more than just words on a page. It's more than just black and white text contrasted together. And love it. Love it, brothers and sisters. Love it, church family. This is the beginning of the greatest love story of all time. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you loved us first. And Lord, for those of us who do love you, Lord, for some of us, we might need to be convicted today because we're not a good witness We're no witness. We're a lousy witness. We're filled with excuses of why we can't share the gospel or invite our friends into our church gatherings. And for others of us, Lord, we need encouragement today. Some of us who who struggle with, are we really saved to know that if you are our Father, if we can say we love the Son, a supernatural work has taken place in our lives 
And you deserve all the glory for it, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done. I pray that when we walk out of here today, we will have a smaller, more humble view of ourselves and a more glorious, magnificent view of you. God, I don't want these words to be boring for any of us. I don't want them to be boring, like I heard that story before, type of boring. We need you, Jesus. Help us to walk in humble, obedient truth to you and your word. In your name we pray, amen.